0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the San Diego News Fix, Name Drop Edition. I'm your host, Christy Totten. Name Drop is all about the fascinating people of San Diego. On the podcast, we've gotten to know artists, scholars, politicians, even astronauts and rock stars. And speaking of rock stars, my guest today is paleontologist Ashley Poust. Ashley is a postdoc researcher at the San Diego Natural History Museum, and he's already been in the newspaper twice this year for discovering two ancient animals. He's modest about it, but he has a really cool job digging up dinosaur bones, studying fossils, and naming animals. His passion for his line of work is obvious, and his excitement about it is contagious. In this interview, we will talk about his discoveries, something called the cat gap, about the best science questions he's ever been asked, and more. Here's our conversation. Well, Ashley, thank you for joining me um, again on Name Drop. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Um, Part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is the last time we talked, you discovered a cat-like creature. And then I Hmm. saw your name in the paper again. You've discovered an ancient dog, and you've also discovered dinosaurs. Like, how? How how do you go about this? How many things have you discovered?
1: Well, all the work that I do is broadly interconnected under this umbrella of vertebrate paleontology. And I think that that term might be familiar to many people, but essentially anything with bones, I am willing to work on. Now, I will say uh, bony fish are about equal to everything else put together, amphibians and birds and dinosaurs and mammals um, in terms of their diversity and the number of species that have existed in in Earth's history. They may even extend beyond that. Um, You know, mammals are really familiar but there's only about 5,000 living mammals. And there's two, three times that many birds and two, three times that many amphibians. And there's like, you know, I don't know, a dozen times, (laughs) depending on some definitions and how many uh, fish we have yet to discover out in the oceans. um, They're much more diverse. So even though I claim to be a bone uh, paleontologist, um, there are groups that I'm less familiar with than others. um, But broadly, I've worked in the group that's pterosaurs and dinosaurs and birds, and the group that, uh, which also includes crocodiles, things like that. Uh, and the, the group that includes mammals like ourselves.
0: So, I mean, are you like a rock star at this? Or this is just what pe- people in paleontology do? You're just discovering ancient animals all the time.
1: So I, I definitely would not call myself a rock star. I mean. <laughs> I, if I'm lucky, I'm getting to the point where I'm opening for for big names, you know, like <laughs> like I, I I my friends are are Bob Dylan and I'm Donovan, you know, like we're we're it's not we're not talking like uh, the Stones here, but no, I'm I'm really lucky to be in these these circles, you know. I, my um my boss here at the San Diego Natural History Museum is our director of paleontology, Tom Demaray. and he's one of the people who has literally written the books on um, fossil whales and fossil pinnipeds. So seals and sea lions, and and that's one of the true strengths of the San Diego area's fossil record. We are really an essential part of the history of the coastal ecosystems in the Pacific. Um, And so understanding how mammals went back to the ocean and how the uh, ecology of the ocean connects with the ecology of the land. San Diego is a really important, our museum in particular, a really important part um, uh, of that research. And so yeah, so getting to work with some rock stars is is kind of where I'm at. Um, I am excited though that the people find this stuff interesting. Um, the the dog is work that will be ongoing. I mean, we we hope to work with some people whose expertise is specifically in canids, the group of carnivores that includes dogs and wolves, and um, the the group that includes coyotes, etc., foxes. We think this is actually outside of all. So there, there are three different moments in the evolution of dog-like animals. A a really early one where they're almost weaselly-like. A a middle moment where we think this animal might belong. Where they're yeah, they're kind of unique. They do some of them do specialize in crunching bones like modern hyenas do. Hyenas aren't dogs. They're they look dog-like. Uh, but they're more related to cats, which is weird, but there was a moment where dogs special specialized in that. And then some of them go the opposite direction. And that's during the cat gap, this period where there are really nothing cat-like in North America. And they start to have more cat-like features, shorter faces and, and, you know, claws for grasping. So dogs are, have this weird, much longer, deeper history than I think even we're familiar with. And we hope that this, someone will come along and study this more in detail because it really could be an interesting key piece, at least in the North American part of that story.
0: Huh, that's really interesting, cat gap. I hadn't heard that. So there were cats, they disappeared for a while and they came back or what's the story? Yeah,
1: well, and it's even broader than that. It's anything even cat-like. So Mm -hmm. this specimen, Diego Alluris, that I described with co-authors and coworkers here at the museum, was not a cat in in really in any sense. It's very cat-like. You know, the alurus part even refers to that that cat-like nature. Um, but it's not even it's not even really a carnivore. It's not even in the group of like dogs plus cats. It's something else outside of that. But it is so specialized for this cat-like lifestyle of you know like relatively good running, climbing, but also having real hypercarnivory and saber teeth for focused on, on meat eating to the exclusion of chewing bone and to the exclusion of eating plant matter, you know, dogs and wolves and stuff as good as they are as hunting, they'll happily eat roots and anything they get their hands on and non bones. Uh, but Mm -hmm. cats really don't, you'll never see like a cat, like, you know, (laughs) fighting for a bone. They just don't think about that. Uh, and that's because they don't have the teeth for it. They, through evolution, they've lost the ability to do that and still safely keep their back teeth intact. And if they don't have those back teeth sharp, then they can't slice through meat, they can't eat at all. Uh, And yeah, a toothless cat is a little sad, you gotta help that cat out. So these ancient animals like Diego Alures were very cat-like. And so even the cat-like things are gone during the cat gap. Um, It's a a period, it used to be longer, we've now found some cats at the beginning and some cats at the end, but there still seems to be a period in which the early flowering of cat-like things, they go extinct in North America, and while there are cats in other parts of the world, they don't make it to North America for multiple millions of years. So there's there is a cat-free zone. So allergic people would have been happy for that part of the Miocene. But uh, we do think there's some likelihood that these dog-like animals were actually started starting to fill that that space.
0: Mm, That's super fascinating, you know, to the story of like nine lives. It's like they were extinct and they're like, you're not getting rid of us. We're coming back. (laughs) Yeah, Um, well,
1: and that gets at one of my favorite topics, which is convergent evolution. So, you know, there are such a weird diversity and weird types of animals. I'm always finding about some animal I've never heard of before, a sea slug that catches things with its head or, you know, who knows, (laughs) some crazy thing. So there's a huge diversity of animals, but weirdly, some solutions seem to be Very successful to the point where different groups of organisms do them again and again and again. So right now we have dolphins that are dolphin shaped, and then in the past, you know, we we also have tuna that are pretty darn close to being dolphin shaped. Their tails go like this instead of like this, but in in general they're this football shape with a long beak and fast swimming and deep ocean, um, small repeating teeth. But then during the time of the dinosaurs, we had ichthyosaurs, which are reptiles, they're not fish, they're not mammals. And so, how is these diff totally different groups get the almost this exact same body shape, same rate, tail to to body ratio for you know for their type of swimming? And it's just efficiency. So if you are a certain way, then that's very successful and you have more offspring. It's like classic Darwin evolution. Um, but the fact that different groups can even stumble into those mm-hmm. ways of making a living, I, I think is really fascinating. And so over time we see different groups of animals even though their ancestors lived on land, going back to the water and making a living in the ocean. um, They're limited in in ways that fish aren't by having to come up and breathe. Um, But it happens again and again. And and so there's something really fascinating there about finding success uh, in in life.
0: Wow, that's so fascinating. You have the coolest job. Um, I just (laughs) want to get you on record. How many things, how many animals have you discovered?
1: That's a good question. Well, and so the, the word discovery is always you know, uh, a bit of a problematic one. So it depends on what you mean. I've gotten the chance to go out and work in the field and find all kinds of really awesome animals, both with the work that I've started and and getting the chance to go out and help other people. Uh, you know, everything from dinosaurs to ray, you know, sharks and rays, um, but and even invertebrates. In terms of ones that I have helped put a name on, though, like write the the paper, do the scientific research to name things, I've only named a few um so I helped um uh, on a project where we actually named a, a, seas- a seashell, which is a um, the type that we named was a, a called a tusk shell. It's a type of mollusk related to clams and oysters and things, but it actually has this little horn-shaped or tooth-shaped um uh, uh, shell as opposed mm-hmm. to like a normal clam shell and and um, we, we named that after the, the lead author was a former member of the uh, US Geological Survey and he named it after Mary McGann, who's one of the um, uh, people that worked with extensively. Uh, I also have to name this dinosaur, um, Wulong, which is a small feather dinosaur, and there's more research coming out on that, not too long in the future, I think. And, um, and then I, I'm starting to work on publishing some of these um, marine mammals and and cat-like animals from the San Diego area.
0: Mm -hmm. So cool. Um, Do you ever deal with skeptics? You Mm. know, that's something like I never even thought of until a few years ago. You know, we have flat earthers now and, uh, you know, people that think you're the one making the dinosaur bones. (laughs) Like, do you deal with that? And what do you say?
1: It happens occasionally for the most part. Um, I, I think there's some insulation from that. I think, when you're when you're operating at that level, you do encounter like you're operating at the level of like, I really don't believe dinosaurs are real at all. I think people are making it up. Then it's it's not very interesting for you to go confront the the person who would just hand you evidence that says, no, that's <laughs> not true. But I mean, I, I I all I can tell you is, and it, you know, if they're if they're skeptics, they would just just think I'm lying, but I, you know, seeing the material in the ground, you realize it would really be impossible. For humans to fake that, um, the, the other thing that I think is really spectacular is is I do bone histology. So I look at the structure of the fossil under a microscope, and we're talking—we're not talking, you know, an inch or a tenth of an inch. We're talking microns. Like you can only see this on a scanning electron microscope or a high-powered light microscope. And there are, are the same features that you would see that I've seen in my human anatomy class for students. And that commonality, the same type of bone tissue and the same shape of bone cells, I think again, it's not something you could you could fake. Um, I mean we make interpretations and you know we we make extrapolations, but I think good science is always very clear about when that's happening. And that's very different from trying to you know pull the wool over anyone's eyes. I think we would fail very quickly. Now that's not to say that there aren't liberties taken with things like, you know, Jurassic World. Um, but that's in the interest we hope of telling you a good story. And that's not the same as what we try to do here at the museum.
0: Mm. Um, speaking of, I have a lightning round for you. And okay. that's a good question. Like, what's the best dinosaur movie? Is it just Jurassic? I mean, are there other dinosaur movies? Land Before Time? Yeah,
1: there's not. There aren't a <laughs> ton. Uh, you know, I really like the first Jurassic Park. I think the first Jurassic Park is a all around good movie i think the special effects stand up incredibly well there's some goofy science but it's also there's also some really good science if you weren't familiar with like the moment where which is also scary where they're in they are in the the air-conditioned um office and the velociraptor looks at them through the window and breathes and then the the warm breath fogs Mm -hmm. the window that moment is scary you know it's a good visual but it also is picking up on this very very early on in the 90s very not very widely known that it was likely that dinosaurs may have actually been fairly warm-blooded compared to things like you know a little fence lizard that you see. Uh, and actually this is a, a debate that we're still finding awesome data and support for. And so there's a paper that came out um uh acquaintance of mine, Ismail Wyman, just published this paper that shows that <laughs> uh using tiny fossils of molecules, so like leftover bits of molecules that are preserved in the fossils, they can pick up on the record of being warm-blooded in really old animals and that that happened fairly <laughs> early in, in dinosaur so and and weirdly in some of these marine reptiles too so they converged on again that convergent evolution on being active thermo thermically um heating their bodies etc
0: wow super um, in interesting sense. so do you like was that just a lucky guess on the and the part of jurassic park or was that actually informed no they at the were time?
1: they were using they conferred at the time that for the first few movies, Jack Horner um, was a reference, someone that they they came to with questions. And they also got some of the information from the original Michael Crichton novels and stuff. Uh, and then they, in the most recent couple movies, um, they've also conferred with a paleontologist um, who's uh maybe somewhat familiar to people, Steve Russati, who's at Edinburgh, he just wrote a pretty good book called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> Very um cool. but yeah, so. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a lucky guess. I would say that it was nice that they focused on it. But then other things, you know, you just make make them into movie monsters. So like the there's no evidence Dilophosaurus is a dinosaur that's up. It's in California. You know, it's it's from Southwest here, Arizona and California, and um, it it was no evidence that it had any kind of frill or spat poison or anything. So they, they do make stuff up. But the first Jurassic Park movie, first yeah. Jurassic Park movie is a solid um, uh, solid answer. I also really like there's this goofy old movie called the valley of guanji where it's like cowboys and dinosaurs <laughs> no. And it's like they find this valley and these cowboys are like lassoing. and it's these great like harryhausen school you know like clay nation way before computers wow. uh, so it's uh, that's a fun one i'd recommend that one to people too I
0: have to to share this with you. A friend of mine went to a creationist museum, I think, in Mm. Kentucky, where they called dinosaurs mission lizards. I don't know if you knew this, but that's, first of all, a really cool band name. Yeah, it would be a great band. (laughs) The idea being that missionaries would mount and ride the dinosaurs around to deliver the good word. So now you know that.
1: I feel like they would have been more successful if that was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Been at it that long. Definitely.
1: That's that's really wonky. (laughs)
0: okay let's see what is your favorite museum other than your own oh that's a good question
1: (sighs) okay so my i guess my quick answer would be in paris there is a museum of comparative anatomy that was started like in the 1700s by cuvier and it's very old school it's not you know computers and interactives and restorations you walk in and it is two stories tall and it's just the bones of every animal in the world. But immediately you're impressed with the big central message of biology that there's this variation, but yet they share all these things in common. And so you can look at the craziness of a giraffe and say, oh, those are the same bones in the leg that are on this little mole over here. And and so I think that that central idea of homology that Cuvier was writing about and, and Owen later in England was writing about you don't even have to have an intellectual or an educational background. you almost like absorb it just from being in that. And so it's a very cool old school museum. I hope they never change the overall format. So that would be my f- first guess is the naturalist Museum in Paris. Um, but I mean it's hard. I mean the um, there's some really cool museums um, in in the United States, and uh, there's a really excellent new exhibit at the Royal Ontario Museum, which is like the big museum in Toronto, Canada. Um, on the origin of life through the origin of the dinosaurs, that I think is the mo- one of the most interesting and visually exciting, accessible exhibits I've ever seen. So I mean, people are ever that far away, but California has fantastic museums. I mean, I adore the um, Naturalist Museum in Los Angeles, and the tar pits section is so cool with the direwolves and the outdoor exhibits. Um, I'd love to go back up there. I I like small quirky museums too museums that are have a good local focus or that have a particular mission. I really love the ALF museum, which is the only, uh, you know, formal official museum that's located within a high school. Mm -hmm. So that's up in Claremont and it, it it's a museum. You can go visit it. They have displays and really interesting fossils, including things like baby dinosaurs and, you know, ice age footprints, Wow. Of big mammals but but it's also a place where active research happens and they have curators and mm-hmm. it's a place where high schools go to high school <laughs> amazing um, so The high schoolers are getting to see this material in their science classes and and benefit from that so that's a weird but really really i think successful little example so i like, I like quirky places like that too
0: definitely that sounds amazing uh what is do you have a pet peeve or do you have anything <laughs> anything like just you can list more than one if you have more than one. <laughs> I don't know. My
1: neighbor's dog barks all the time. That drives me pretty crazy. <laughs> That's a good
0: one. My dog does the same. I try,
1: in science, though, I try not to, even though obviously there are things that bug me, I try not to be too nitpicky, at least with with general audiences. So I could, you know, I could get off on tangents. Yeah, birds are dinosaurs. That's true. You know, oh, it's a, uh, you know, all pterosaurs uh, aren't pterodactyls, but all pterodactyls are pterosaurs. I can, you know, you can do that to the end of time. <laughs> But I think I think the bottom line is if people are trying and they're engaged and they want to learn then any of those little inconsistencies or you know not quite being like up on something that that all is like unimportant. So what's more important to me is is I mean having the discussion like why would that matter, you know, that birds are dinosaurs. So much more mm-hmm. important than you know always saying non-avian dinosaurs when you mean big big the big ones.
0: That's a good answer. Um, is a hot dog a sandwich, in your estimation? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, not That's yeah, not okay, good. so this is something, <laughs> speaking of dinosaurs
1: that for a while, sue the T-Rex, like, weighed in on Um <laughs> I don't know, I think it's its own, it's its own thing. I don't think you can apply those, those terms. I think whatever we agree on, communally, so... Depends. It depends if the bread closes all the way. I guess.
0: <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. It's its own thing. So are tacos. Like we don't. We don't have to actually discuss
1: this. Yeah, we're in San Diego, so tacos are definitely that's their own. Right. They have a different starting place.
0: Right. Okay. What is your perfect San Diego day? You have the day off. What are you gonna do with it? Oh, that's
1: hard. Um, well, we mentioned tacos. You gotta have some fish tacos in there. Uh, I don't know. It's gotta have something to do with the ocean. You know, I, I love the mountains. I think San Diego's beaches are just so incredible. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd love to kind of like the, I'd love to, yeah, maybe walk along our, our beaches and uh, split my, my vision between some of the waves and um, uh, some of the cool geology that we have here.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. So Thanks. yeah, San Diego
1: has this weird, it, the Southern part of the California is this weird thing where there's kind of a big split. We have really cool and very visible tilted line beds along some of the, the classic surfing beaches that are dinosaur age and they're from deep mm-hmm. water. And then there's a gap in time and right on top of those, but at a different angle entirely, because the crust has moved in that, in that gap are rocks that are only like 50 million years old. So there's missing millions and millions of years in between those two. Um, so that's kind of a, it's cool to like see the ancient time and then see the ocean there, just like it probably would have looked at any given time.
0: That's really amazing. Is that what your life is like? Like you walk around, like I just see a cliff, rock, tree, but you're like, oh, like this whole, you know, ancient history unfolding.
1: So, I mean, not that I'm always like keen with that. Hopefully I can chill out sometimes, but <laughs> but uh, that's what got me into, into geology. So when I was an undergraduate student, um, I didn't want to do paleo. I wasn't, I mean, I liked dinosaurs when I was a little kid, but I didn't want to do geology or anything, even science. I was like excited to get rid of my science credits. So I took a course. That took me out camping for three weeks, and I and did my 101 geology class. But they totally scored me. They they totally <laughs> uh, they hooked me entirely. And it was the moment more than more than being outside or more than the subject matter. It was the way that you. It was almost like learning a new language, where what had sounded like noise all of a sudden had meaning, and I could see it was. It wasn't just oh that's a nice cliff. It's like well why is that cliff there? What is that cliff made of? That cliff tells me what. And, and it, so this this idea that all of a sudden there were these stories, these secrets uh, around me. And it, it must have been something, I don't, know, I don't want to be too cheesy, but it must have been something mythic, like when people first had, you know, religions about, you know, mountain and, and stream and forests. And it, it really felt like the world was a more alive place when I knew some of that that history.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's an awesome way to put it. it is sort of like unlocking a secret, you know, lens through which to view the world. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Um, I have a friend who's a geologist. He's the best to hike with because he'll tell me all that stuff.
1: Um, well, let's it see. can be a double edged sword hiking with naturalists. Sometimes you're <laughs> right. like, oh, this is so amazing. Other times, you know, you've been right. hiking for 20 minutes and you're only like 100 feet down the path. You're Like, oh, look at this. Oh, look at this plant. That's a California <laughs> native. What is this? Doing? You know, right, it can right, be right. Frustrating. Um, OK, let's
0: see. What? Oh, well, I want to go back to, um, I heard you on NPR before I knew who you were (laughs) talking to the kid about the dinosaurs, right? And that was a, a, so just to let listeners know, it was like an eight year old kid, I think, who said, you know, his one criticism of NPR, which he listened to a lot with his parents is like not enough dino content. So they brought you in. And uh, you had a really cute conversation with him, but like, he, he just asked you like, why are dinosaurs so big? And you're like, that's such a good question that I don't get asked a lot. Like, are there other questions like that that like kids ask that are just like so awesome and essential, but the rest of us adults are, are missing?
1: I think there's a lot actually. One of the things I was just talking to um, Tom Demery about this. A lot of times in science, the most basic things are not necessarily answered fully. So I did a research project that I was really excited to be part of, where we got to describe only the second dinosaur ever found that was pregnant. It had eggs inside its body cavity when it died, and those eggs were preserved, which would tell us which eggs go with which parent, which is always very hard, and how many eggs they would produce at a time, and so many really cool aspects of its biology that are hidden from us normally. But one of the questions we had was, which end of the egg comes out first when a bird lays an egg? And essentially there's almost no research. No, almost no one no knows
0: what to look at.
1: In the end, our best data came from um agriculture journals from from chicken and ostrich farms. And we had at least for those those few birds, we had good answers. And to get at the more derived, like songbirds, like you know, little we actually looked at pet pet books. There's a really huge text. This kind of quirky guy wrote this textbook. He had, I don't know, budgies or parrots, parakeets for his whole life. And he, so he saw, you know, many generations and he wrote a whole like 700 page book with these observations, it's kind of a really quirky thing, <laughs> but it's ended up being useful because he would do the deep de- level of detail. These obsessed people have, uh, he could tell you about which, which end of the egg comes out first. And so this even basic complicated things like that are not necessarily, um, well-documented. And so I think asking sometimes naive questions is, is hugely awesome. And, and that's one thing that's fun about kids are great at paleo for two reasons. I think, one is that they're not afraid to ask these basic questions, and so sometimes that gets tiresome. Like when I, if I get asked who T-Rex can beat in a fight, one more time, I'm just going to throw up my hands. <laughs> like I don't know, kid. <laughs> what do you think? But I do think that that being able to ask those sort of like big questions, not be afraid, is or think assume you know the answer is mm-hmm. awesome. The second reason the kids are are great at paleontology is they're low to the ground, so they see all the little stuff. Oh, I love it. That's
0: so funny. Um, well, yeah, that's a good reminder. You know, uh, no, there's no dumb questions, right. Except for if T-Rex can beat other dinosaurs. I, mean, I, think,
1: I think I get frustrated when people ask questions with an ulterior motive and you can see this mm. on politics, but we won't go there, but in paleontology, sometimes we we'll have people come to the museum and they'll say, Oh, I want you to identify something cool that I found. And I'll say, Oh, I'm sorry. This is a, this is a beautiful rock, but it's an agate. They're not really common in San Diego. That's a nice find. And they'll be like, nah, it's a, it's a dinosaur agar. This is a, dinosaur, dinosaur skull and i'll be like well then why did you come ask like the experts like what why like are adults are doing my this time, what's that adults oh yeah oh yeah um people just have their preconceived notions and i'm not even saying they're always wrong i'm just saying if you have a preconceived notion then i get frustrated your question because you're not you don't want to uh, back and forth you don't want a discussion or you don't want to take advantage of someone's expertise mm-hmm. but if someone's asking a question honestly uh, there are no there's no there's no dumb questions because The worst case scenario is that they want more information, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I feel like the number one thing I've learned from science is I don't know very much at all. Like the world is such a vast place. There's so many different types of experience and types of animals that I'm always learning.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, I wanted to tell you, so I moved here from Las Vegas and one of mm-hmm. my favorite trails there is called Fossil Ridge because there are a lot of fossils. And so I found this like a uh, fossilized shell. I think it's like cool. an early, like a brachiopod, is that the right nice. thing? Yeah, 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 okay. found And I thought it was so cool. And so I brought it home and I showed a bunch of people, including children, and I thought they would be stoked about it, nobody cared. Like my dad uh. didn't care, my friend's kids <laughs> didn't care, whatever, I took it back there and I left it there because I was like, you know, I was just excited about it. But anyway. Well, if
1: you if you if you, you have, like, encourage people, so it's legal in the United States to collect invertebrates from most places, except some some public parks, you know, national parks, state parks, you're not allowed to, which is good, so you want yeah. them to be there for everyone to enjoy. But you know, from from your own land or from. Uh, uh, you know, from national BLM land, National Forest Service, and you're allowed to collect a small number of inverts. Mm-hmm. So I encourage kids to have collections. If you know, cool. the have collection though, it's awesome to return it. Because then the next person who's excited, you know, I didn't
0: even think about the legality, to be honest. It just
1: felt like the right thing to do. You yeah, know, it's like,
0: like there's no nice. reason that I need this on my windowsill. I'm going to go put it back. Somebody else, hopefully, will be excited about well, it. And then, and then
1: you have like a mission for a place to go back to places. I, one thing that cracks me up is, so I have friends who work for the, Uh, national park that's petrified forest which is in Arizona and um that not daily but weekly probably they get little little letters little packages that are someone who who they like are returning the the fossil wood that they shouldn't they felt like they shouldn't have (laughs) taken you know someone's aunt took it in the 40s and you know and they had bad luck ever since right right
0: I think that factored into my decision
1: I I like that attitude To, to keep the world a wild and exciting place for people I think is really great I don't I don't, the, the job of museums is not to put everything in a box. I mean, I, 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 strong, I believe that's not our goal here at, at San Diego at all. I mean, we want to be a nexus for cooperation in California and the Southwest and, and into Mexico between all these parties. And we want to conserve both knowledge and data and materials. So that does involve some collections and keeping the, the information, the data with those collections so we can analyze that in the future. I mean, we're learning stuff about rattlesnakes. We have the largest rattlesnake collection in the world. Super cool. I like a lot too. Um, and uh we're learning things about rattlesnakes that that relate to climate change and relate to, I mean, hugely influential. Um, and that those are the sort of records we have to keep taking. And we don't want, so I never, you know, I don't want to ever take more samples that are necessary, especially of living creatures, but but having this like library for the future is what we want to do in a museum. So we we're not interested in boxing everything up. I think we'd rather have the world out there for people to explore, but we just need to make sure that uh, it has the context and that's sort of how we feel our job is, is to mm-hmm. preserve that, that context and then communicate that with people.
0: That's really cool. Library of the future. I'm going to use that. Well, um, Ashley, it's been so awesome to talk to you. We're kind of running out of time here, but just one last question. Um, you know, What are you working on now? What are you excited about now? Oh, that's
1: awesome. Um, so I have a couple different lines of research, which is always really fun. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about uh, is we have a site on the California Channel Islands that's telling us really neat things about what happened in the coast of California at the beginning of the Ice Age. And so those are fossils that aren't very common. And there's a lot of discussion. We go about why that is. Um, ice Age fossils on land are fairly common. But the ones that are in the along our seas aren't because the sea level now, as the ice melted, has raised up. So if there are those fossils, they're underwater in many places, but the Channel Islands, because they are tectonically active and the f- fault goes through there and there's earthquakes, some of those rocks have been raised up and we can find them. And so we're finding really interesting things, including I uh, have here with me and I'll show you, but you'll have to just tell the readers. This is a small <laughs> jaw um, of with one really large tooth on it. Wow. And this is most likely the oldest sea otter fossil that we know of.
0: Wow. And you found that at the Channel mm-hmm. Islands. Yeah. So cool. OK, well, thank you again for joining me, for sharing um, You know your enthusiasm for the subject. It's really mm-hmm. contagious. I appreciated learning more about you and about your job. Uh, so yeah, thank you.
1: Of course, my pleasure.